This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. It is my privilege to be in dialogue today with Dr. Tanisha Fazal. She is a professor of political science at the University of Minnesota and an Andrew Carnegie Fellow from the years 2021 to 2023. We are here to discuss her book, Wars of Law, Unintended Consequences in the Regulation of Armed Conflict, published by Cornell University Press, 2018. Tanisha, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? Were there any formative events in your life that catalyzed the scholar you'd become later in life as an adult? Uh, So I was born and grew up on Long Island in New York. I actually used to have a Long Island accent, believe it or not, but Mm. I changed myself out of it Mm. um, in high school. Uh, I think in terms of formative events, um, I, you know, my, my dad was from Bangladesh. And so we would travel to Bangladesh. He would go every year to visit my grandmother, his mother. Um, And as a family, we would go every few years. And I think that that was pretty formative for me, especially as a small child, because it gave me this very up close look at poverty that contrasted greatly with my daily life back in the United States. And so that set this kind of baseline um, sense of real difference uh, across countries and the way that people live their lives. But then, you know, closer to home, um, there was this expectation by both my parents that I would go to graduate school. Didn't kind of didn't matter which one, but it was assumed you I would go to college and then an expectation I would go to graduate school. And when I was in college, I was very lucky to have the opportunity to be a research assistant for Louise Richardson, who was uh, on the faculty at the time, uh, has since, you know, done amazing things. She's, I can't recall the exact title, but she's basically the first female president of Oxford University and is the incoming president of the Carnegie Corporation. Um, and, but this was, you know, many, many years ago and before uh, all of all of those accolades, well-deserved accolades for her, but I got to see this very smart, um, intelligent, 
really woman engaged in really interesting work. Uh, and so I was helping her with a project she was starting on international institutions. And it just grabbed me intellectually. And we had a lot of really terrific work-related conversations, but inevitably you hear about people's lives. And so it became clear that she had this, you know, she had, she was married, she had a family, she had what I wanted and she was doing this really interesting work. So I think that was having her as a role model was part of what persuaded me or made me realize that getting a PhD and becoming a professor was, um, was something that would work for me. But I will also say that there were some unexpected turns. You know, my first when I st when I started graduate school, I expected to be working on development and democracy in Latin America and South Asia, and instead, I've become an international relations scholar. And part of that was just almost by happenstance. You know, that I switched from comparative politics to international relations partly because of who was on leave, and who was around when I was doing my coursework and. You know, I think still I'm learning still and figuring myself out as a scholar. What a journey. Yeah, <laughs> I think we, we're all we're all in, in the middle of our journeys. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? So I finished my Ph.D. in 2001, the summer of 2001, and I went to um, back to Harvard for a postdoc that year. And so this is, of course, Nine, you know, we're talking very quickly about 9-11. And I remember, you know, there was, of course, all the shock of it. But as a scholar sitting back and thinking, why, you know, we've just invaded Afghanistan. or I can't remember. This might have been around the time of the invasion. Um, and thinking, why aren't we issuing a declaration of war against Afghanistan? This seems like a pretty obvious thing to do. And so then that led me to kind of dig in a little bit historically. And I realized that the US hadn't issued a formal declaration of war since World War II. And then I looked a little bit more and realized that this was actually a global phenomenon that pretty much everybody, every country had stopped issuing declarations of war and their wars with other countries. And that peace treaties in wars between states were also on in the decline. Um, <clears throat> and so those were the two questions that really started me on the path to writing this book. Why is it that we no longer see declarations of war, peace treaties, and interstate war? But pretty quickly, um, I realized also that I had to talk about civil wars in the book because most wars at the time, most wars today, are still civil wars, uh, even though we the interstate wars sometimes make the news much more. Um, and I noticed that there were some opposite trends in civil wars. And so most of my work has been very question driven. And so I didn't know the answers to these questions. And so wanted to, to figure them out. Um, and, you know, the answer has to do, I argue, with the proliferation of international humanitarian law. And I think one of the messages of the book is that law oftentimes has unexpected effects. And this is the subtitle of the book, Unintended Consequences in the Regulation of Armed Conflict. Some of these unintended effects are good, some of them are bad, but part of what I want people to take away from the book is the notion that more law isn't always better, um, that we have to think really carefully about the kinds of laws that are being written and who is particip participating in the lawmaking process. What are the primary themes in your book? 
what argument does your book advance? I think one of the primary themes is that it's important to think about global shifts and changes in international norms because they can be quite consequential. The argument is really, it's kind of an argument in three parts. Um, the In the first part, what I'm doing is in some ways largely descriptive. I'm tracing the development of the laws of war, sometimes also referred to as international humanitarian law. Um, and so these are the laws that govern how belligerents, how, how parties to war conduct themselves in the course of a war. So when we talk about war crimes, we're, ta- we're in the domain of international humanitarian law, for example. And what I find in just looking through the history of international humanitarian law is that the number there's been an increase in the number of laws on the books over time. So international humanitarian law has proliferated over time. But it's also changed in character. It used to be written in ways that really favored belligerent rights. And today it's written in a way um, that is much more constraining of belligerence. And that's not a judgment, it's just a description. Um, but I do think, and this is sort of the second part of the argument, that this has implications for different kinds of wars. So uh, it has implications for interstate wars in that it dis- ends up disincentivizing states from engaging with the formalities of war, specifically declarations of war and peace treaties, right? These were the two things that started me on this path because I was trying to figure out why we no longer see them in interstate war, but also implications for civil wars, sometimes in the opposite direction, because a certain type of rebel group and civil wars, secessionists, groups that want their own independent, internationally recognized state, these groups increasingly are trying to engage with international humanitarian law. And so these are some of the unintended consequences, both the um, the disincentivizing states from engaging, but the incentivizing non-state actors or armed non-state actors from engaging. And I think that leads to kind of another theme of the book, which is that international law is written by states for states, but most wars today are not interstate wars, they're civil wars. Um, And this disconnect in the way that international law and including international humanitarian law is written with what's actually happening happening on the ground, I think presents real challenges to how parties conduct themselves in these wars. How does your book advance the existing body of scholarship on civil wars? Um, well, I think it advances the existing body of scholarship on civil wars, which is enormous, okay, of course, uh, in a few different ways. You know, one of the one of the one of the contributions here is that it provides a more historical view of civil wars. Um, most of the quantitative work on civil wars in, in my field in international relations uh, and to some extent in comparative politics is really focused on the post-1946 era. And that's partly because the major data set out there, the Uppsala conflict data program, their data set, um, it starts in 1946, and so that's the data available, and so that's the data that people use. But one of the arguments I'm making in the book is that the, there are effects of the proliferation of these laws of war on civil wars bef- you know, after as compared to before 1946 because of the changes in the laws themselves. But I also think that another contribution of the book 
um, and I'm not the only one who's made this contribution, is this idea of connecting what rebels want with how they fight. Um, so in, in, in political science, you know, we're divided into four subfields, political theory, American politics, this is in the US, of course, international relations, that's usually where I sit, and comparative politics. Comparative politics will, will focus on one country or a smaller set of countries, and they've done really amazing work on civil wars, and they delve really deeply into the politics of a lot of different rebel groups, but they don't zoom out and compare them in the way that that I do in this book and that a lot of other people have done as well. And I think that one of the contributions here is to kind of uh, signal to comparativists who have a lot to say about these, these questions that secessionist groups in particular um, behave differently. And I think this is an idea that has caught on, although not everybody agrees with it, and that's okay. Can you tell us some more about your data sets and the variables that you measure? Yeah, so there are um, two data sets that underlie the quantitative analysis in the book, um, the international war initiation and termination data set and the civil war initiation and termination data set. Um, so IWIT and CWIT. And uh, both of these data sets um, I put together with uh, my good friend and, and colleague Paige Fortna, who's at Columbia University. I, I started this book when I was on the faculty at Columbia. Uh, and we needed different variables in the same wars, which is why we joined forces. Um, and so I needed variables on whether a state had issued a formal declaration of war in an interstate war, or whether a rebel group had issued a declaration of independence in a civil war. I also wanted to look, of course, at compliance with international humanitarian law and civilian targeting, uh, as well as whether there were peace treaties ending these different wars. Uh, and Paige Fortna uh, was more interested on the war termination side, because that's really where her work has focused. And she was especially interested in looking at the growing gap between, or what she suspected was a, a growing gap between the political and military outcomes of war, which um, in some ways lines up with my interest in peace treaties. Uh, and I will say that this was a very, uh, was a very long and intensive process of collecting these data. So for every war we had uh, at least two people, and usually undergraduates or graduate students, uh, collect data on these wars and all these different code, all these different variables. And then we compared the two and made sure that they reconciled with each other. And if they didn't, then we would bring in a third and sometimes fourth coder. And then sometimes we would have to reconcile these multiple codings ourselves. Um, so there was a, this took a lot of time. The uh, I mentioned that the um, Civil War data set is called CWIT, which you know if you compress it is QUIT, um, which is something that uh, certainly occurred to us uh, over over the years because that was the much more challenging data set to collect. Um, but you know we've uh, we what we've done is because we put so much work into this and we don't want other people to have to reinvent the wheel. We put all those reports that our coders wrote um, in the qualitative data repository. So you can go to that, that repository and actually download all the reports um, and see both how we coded these data, but in case it's useful for others as well. What does your book teach us about NGOs and their international behavior? Um, so I mean, that's a good question. So non-governmental organizations, um, 
are pretty central to the development of international humanitarian law. Um, and I think what the book, the implications of the book for NGOs uh, kind of depends on the NGO. There are a lot of NGOs in the international humanitarian law space. I think we can, I, I'm comfortable saying that they come with good intentions, so I'm, I have no intention of impugning them. Um, but, you know, we can take two to think about some contrasts and examples. So, you know, I'll start with the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, which is viewed and they view themselves as the custodian of international humanitarian law. And, you know, it's, it's a massive organization, the ICRC. They're often pushing for more law. But in my view, uh, I think that ICRC often asserts the law rather than uh, and sort of doesn't have as much an interest in publicly recognizing the limits of the law. And I think here it's interesting to look at the revised customary uh, interpretation of international humanitarian law than the last few years has been on, been, you know, that the ICRC has been developing for a very long time. There's a lot of work and careful thought that went into this. But when you read some of these, or when I read some of these, I think, well, I'm not so sure that this is the ICRC's interpretation of customary international humanitarian law. I think that there are others who might disagree. The ICRC is also interesting because it's a state-based organization. Um, it's also a membership organization, or it, it takes contributions from states. Uh, and so, you know, the ICRC, for example, will go into countries at war um, and check on how prisoners of war detainees are doing. But they'll only do that if they have the approval of the state that's at war. So this is what I mean when I say that it's a very state-based organization. But as I mentioned earlier, when I was talking about what inspired me to write the book, most wars today are civil wars. Um, and states don't necessarily want NGOs uh, entering their country to look at how they're treating the rebels uh, who are against whom they're fighting. And so this is where you start to see some limits to NGOs like ICRC. And then in contrast, we can think of another NGO like um, Geneva Call, also not surprisingly given the title based in Switzerland. And you know, Geneva Call recognizes, was started in the recognition of this issue, this challenge of a state-based model for monitoring compliance with international humanitarian law in an era when most wars are civil wars. And so Geneva Call's mission is more about getting armed non-state actors or rebel groups to comply with international humanitarian law. And they don't use a state-based model. They will kind of try and circumnavigate the state in various ways in order to get access to rebel groups. So I think that, you know, just to circle back, one lesson of the book with respect to NGOs is that they sometimes don't think about the sort of longer term consequences of, of what, what their mission is or the political obstacles. Um, but also so many of them, especially the, the older ones are state-based um, and that can be really problematic in an era when most wars are civil wars. How does your book advance our understanding of secession? I think the book um, does a Oh, so let me just say first, like I'm fascinated 
with secessionism and have been for a long time, you know, going back to my first book. Um, and part of the reason I find it fascinating is because there are a lot of people who live in secessionist regions and regions of the world where there are political groups that, again, want to have their own independent, internationally recognized state, but um, but haven't received that kind of international recognition. Uh, but sometimes those groups govern in ways that are more state-like. They are actually providing more services, for example, um, than the states from which they would like to secede. So a really good example here would be Somaliland, right? So Somaliland provides a lot of services to the people who live in this area of Northern Somalia, uh, arguably more and they have more capacity, arguably, than the internationally recognized government in Mogadishu that holds the seat at the United Nations. But of course, Somaliland is not internationally recognized as a state. Somalia is. And in the book, what I'm trying to do is to look at how secessionist groups engage with international humanitarian law, how they conduct themselves in war. And what I find is that they're often trying to send signals to the, the quote unquote international community, which is a a term that I have some some issues with that I'm sort of frustrated with myself and how I deal with it in the book and in general. But it's not clear that the international community is actually paying attention to or receiving these signals, or at least that they're receiving them in the way that secessionists want them to. Um, and I think also, so, so I sort of show these political incentives of secessionists and how signals they sent are or are not received. Um, but one of the other contributions of the book, I think, is to show that secessionists in the array of different kinds of rebel groups or armed nine state actors that have different political aims, distinct from what the aim that secessionists have, um, secessionists have different military incentives, especially uh, when, when it comes to how they want to treat their civilian population in war. So, for example, secessionists... Um, Civili civilian targeting in, in all war is a major issue. Uh, and this is why we have so many people paying attention to it because it's so important. And one of the findings of the book is that secessionists are actually less likely to engage in civilian targeting than non-secessionists among rebel groups. One of the arguments that I make to explain these, this finding is that Secessionists want to send the signal of being good citizens or being capable of restraining their military forces, but also that they understand that they're not supposed to target civilians and so they're not doing it. So this is one of the signals that they're sending to the international community. But I also think that they have a military or more strategic incentive to avoid targeting civilians on the other side because secessionists, unlike other types of rebel groups, are geographically concentrated. There's a specific territory that they claim and they want to gain international recognition as the legitimate government of that territory. Being geographically concentrated makes you very vulnerable to civilian targeting. And secessionists know that if they target across the putative border, that they're very vulnerable to counter-targeting. So I think the secessionists, there are these two different logics that suggest that secessionists uh, will be less likely to target civilians compared to non-secessionist rebel groups. And in fact, this is what I find in the analysis in the book. There's a quote that I'd be interested to ask you about, which is on page 191. You write the following. Good behavior by secessionists is not always rewarded by the international community, however. 
This disconnect between what the international community says and does has not yet, it seems, filtered down to secessionists who appear to have been poor updaters. Unlike scholars, secessionists are focused on the here and now of survival and so lack the perspective enjoyed by scholars. For the near term, secessionist difficulty in updating service the international community well, as these groups may be more attentive to direct signals than to the previous, than, the, than to the experiences of previous less successful secessionists. Insofar as updating occurs in the longer term, however, reliance on secessionists' inability to observe the conduct and consequences for similar groups may not be a viable strategy for an international community that seeks to govern the commencement, conduct, and conclusion of one of the most common types of civil wars today. Can you explain what you mean in this passage? Um, it's kind of a dense passage, isn't it? <laughs> so I, let me, yeah. So let me clarify um, a few points. I, you know, the first is that secessionism has been on the rise uh, for for quite some time, especially since 1945, because the value of being a state has been on the rise. Um, also, secessionist conflict has been on the rise. So we have a lot of secessionist civil wars, in other words. And as I was mentioning earlier, secessionists politically vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world often try and adopt what I call, um, you know, kind of a, like a walk like a duck, talk like a duck theory of statehood, that if we, if we act like a state, then they'll let us into the club of states. And that's the theory that I think a lot of secessionists are operating under. And this extends to their conduct in war. So they try to comply with international humanitarian law. Um, and that is part of the signal that they're sending, that they, if they're led into the club of states, that they'll be good and capable members of that club. But the thing is that that strategy doesn't really work with them. That theory of statehood is not, doesn't have, there's not a lot of evidence that supports it. In other words, good behavior is going by secessionists has been going uh, unrewarded. Um, and at the same time, secessionists are increasingly networking with each other. So, uh, for example, during the Scottish referendum a few years ago, there were people from Catalonia, right? And these are not, those two cases or examples are not cases of um, violent secessionism right now. But, you know, there are other platforms that secessionists use to uh, network with each other. There's actually, um, you know, right now, we're, we're recording this interview in uh in December, early December 2022, the World Cup is going on. There's mm. actually a, another um, another World Cup. It's not happening right now. It's called CONIFA instead of FIFA. Um, and it is a, a secessionist soccer league. So so they're actually networking with each other. So wow. you know, the point that I'm, one point that I'm trying to make here is that for a long time, secessionists were, um, you know, in a, in a war, you're focused on your particular conflict. Um, but they increasingly are networking with each other in ways that to me suggest that they're going to figure out that this strategy of trying to exhibit good behavior and the assumption that that's going to lead to recognition by the international community, it's not working. Um, so the international community would like secessionists to believe that it will work because in that 
could lead to better behavior. But if secessionists, when and if secessionists figure out that it doesn't work, um, and this is what I call the secessionist dilemma, because it's a dilemma not just for secessionists, but for the rest of the world as well, uh, it's, you know, that could lead to different behavior from secessionists in ways that could have some pretty terrible consequences, especially for civilians on the ground. And so it means that the rest of us have to figure out a way to negotiate with secessionists, even though this is something that states, especially the states from which secessionists are trying to secede, don't want to do. You write something else on page 249 that also pertains to secession. You write as follows. The secessionists require the support of the international community if they are to achieve their political aims. This is one reason why secessionists are particularly attentive to the stated preferences of the international community regarding the use of violence, civilian targeting, and declaring independence. A dilemma arises, however, when we consider the efficacy of responsiveness to the desires of the international community. For as it turns out, behaving well does not necessarily end well for secessionists. Can you say more about this? Yeah, so that really does follow on from what I was just saying earlier about what I called the secessionist dilemma. I think maybe here a couple of examples could be helpful. All rebel groups perpetrate abuses. I mean, war is about killing other people. So we're already um, perpetrating abuses. And so none of them are saints. But, you know, think about a group. Um, and there is a, this is a complicated group, but think about the Kurds um, as opposed to, say, the SPLM slash A and South, the South Sudanese rebel group prior to um, South Sudan's independence. Uh, now, again, arguably, these are not comparable situations for lots of reasons. But, you know, the Kurds have set up their own governance structures. They've tried to signal compliance with international humanitarian law at different points. They were allies of the U.S. in Iraq and in Syria. But, you know, and and even recognizing that they spent, this is a transnational secessionist group, and so that complicates it even more. Um, you know, they've never received uh, international recognition. They're not, despite having tried for a very, a very long time, they're not members of the U.N. They don't receive uh, international recognition. Um, and again, lots of reasons, very complicated politics. I think a cleaner example here might be um, a case from Indonesia uh, early in the Cold War, the case of the South Malacans, uh, which were, you know, this is one of the islands uh, in the Indonesian archipelago. Uh, and these, the South Malacans were, were fighting also for secession independence from Indonesia. Um, and they were very clear they were sending they were sending letters uh, and uh, advocates to the United Nations and to other countries saying, "Look, we're behaving very well. The Indonesians are are abusing our population. They're you know they're committing all sorts of abuses, um, and in the expectation or at least the hope that this would actually help them politically. But in neither case, I mean, again, the Kurds are more complicated, but." South Malacca is, is a cleaner case or, or an easier case or simpler case. Um, uh, in either case, what, what was the secessionist group recognized uh, as a member of the international community? On the, on the contrary, on, on, by, by contrast, um, the SPLA, which is the, again, the South Sudanese rebel group, um, not in the ongoing uh, conflict in South Sudan, but 
prior to 2011, um, they were fighting for independence from Sudan, engaged in lots of civilian targeting, you know, really uh, a pretty uh, intense amount, but South Sudan becomes a member of the United Nations in 2011. So, you know, to to maybe oversimplify a little bit, I think what this array of cases suggests is that bad behavior seems like it's sometimes rewarded, whereas good behavior is not. How does your book shed light on the current war between Russia and Ukraine? How can we understand this conflict in light of your book's argument and your book's perspectives? Um, so I think that the first thing to think about is that um, this is clearly a case where um, a declaration of war has not been issued, right? So Putin calls it a special military operation in scare quotes uh, and not a formal declaration of war. There's no formal declaration of war. He's not calling it a war. And something similar happens, right, in 2014 in Crimea. And what we are seeing is that uh, there are massive uh, violations of international humanitarian law, certainly by the Russians, probably also by the Ukrainians, but uh, really intense violations by the Russians uh, in particular. And we know from previous scholarship, not my work, but work by people like Alex Downs, that when uh, when we have territorial wars, that these wars often are especially likely to lead to lead to massive uh, international humanitarian law violations and civilian targeting. Sometimes because the attacking state is trying to effectively cleanse the territory of the people who lived there previously or lived there already. So I think that this, in in a lot of ways, really lines up with the argument that I'm making in the book. Unfortunately, um, and I. Would my guess also is that even though at the moment, again, you know, early December 2022, we're starting to hear, hear calls for negotiation between Russia and Ukraine because of recent Ukrainian advances on the battlefield, I think it's pretty unlikely that we see a formal peace treaty between Ukraine and Russia for political reasons, right? Which is that I don't think that the Ukrainian government can or will recognize any, um, they're, they're not going to agree to uh, giving up any of their territory. They're not gonna, they're not gonna code, agree to any kind of codification of the Russian annexation of Crimea, and they're not gonna agree to any codification of Eastern Ukraine either. Um, but also because if Russia were to conclude a peace treaty, then that opens a window um, for Russia as a country and individual Russians in particular to become, uh, to be held accountable via international institutions for abuses committed during the war. There's a passage on page 132 I'd be curious to ask you about. You write as follows. I argue that the proliferation of codified international humanitarian law has created incentives for states to refrain from signing peace treaties to end their wars with each other. Belligerents that conclude peace treaties acknowledge that they were in a state of war. In a state of war, the applicability of the laws of war is indisputable. Peace treaty negotiations can be forums for accountability. They are often where war crimes are tallied and punishments determined. 
as there are more laws of war on the books, there is more exposure to potential punishment and therefore greater incentives for states to avoid making peace treaties. The disincentive to conclude peace treaties should be particularly great for states aware of their own non-compliance with the laws of war. Can you elaborate upon this insight? Yes, and I think that this is uh, something that supports what I was just saying about Russia in particular being unlikely to want to sign a peace treaty with Ukraine. Um, the basic logic here is that if you know that you're guilty of a crime, then you do what you can to avoid situations that are going to shine a spotlight on that guilt, especially if there are potential legal consequences, which there usually are with a crime. Um, and peace treaties provide important opportunities to expose and increase the odds of accountability for war crimes uh, for a couple of reasons. First, by signing a peace treaty, you admit that you were in a war, right? So the laws of war apply or applied retroactively. And second, accountability for war crimes is something that can be negotiated in a peace treaty. And as the laws of war have proliferated over time, we have new institutions like the International Criminal Court, um, which means, and, and what the ICC does is, and the reason it's called the International Criminal Court is it, it, hold, it, it holds individuals accountable for their war crimes. And so when you think about the people who are negotiating peace treaties potentially, and the people on whose behalf they are negotiating these peace treaties, they're going to be very disincentivized to put themselves in a position where they could be brought up on charges at The Hague, for example. So in other words, the number of charges you could be brought up on has, um, has increased uh, over time and, the, and who can be brought up, right? This focus on individuals has changed over time as well. There's a related quote I'd be curious to to draw your attention to uh, from pages nine and 10, uh, you write as follows. The project of modern humanitarian international humanitarian law is founded on a desire to limit war's worst effects, but its own effects have been mixed, blurring the lines between war and peace and states and secessionists. If we are both never and always at war, then the scope and applicability of the laws meant to govern wartime conduct ought to be revised. If the curative statehood is always out of reach for well-behaved secessionists, they will eventually catch on and revert to bad behavior. And if peace treaties on civil wars are considered to be ends in themselves, then there is a real danger that these wars will in fact not end. My aim in this book is to expose these questions with the broader goal of uncovering patterns in the development of past and present laws of war that can inform and improve future international humanitarian lawmaking efforts. Can you clarify what you mean in this passage? Yes. Um, so, so hopefully the first part of this, the, the idea that modern international humanitarian law is meant to limit the horrors of war, that part is clear. But I think what has happened as this project of international humanitarian law in the modern world has developed over time, and this speaks to the unintended consequences of the proliferation of international humanitarian law, is that it has broadened so much um, that the, you know, 
the danger is that belligerents who want to avoid being held responsible for violations of what has become this very expansive project of international humanitarian law, the danger is that belligerents will find other routes to achieve their same ends and that these routes essentially involve sidestepping the laws of war. So, you know, it's interesting when you look at um, the laws themselves and when you look at the some of the uh, archival work, uh, the, the archives of the negotiations, International humanitarian law is different from another body of international law that's also meant to govern law, excuse me, war, um, which is um, the law, international humanitarian law is sometimes called use ad bellum. Um, and there's another body sometimes called use in bello. Uh, excuse me, I mixed that up. <laughs> Can I start again here? All sure, right. please. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So I'm just going to start with the whole question. Uh, all right. Um, so let me... Just give me a second to regroup. Um, okay. So, so I hope that the first part of that passage is clear that the people who make modern international humanitarian law do so because they want to try and limit the horrors of war. Um, and I think that is maybe helpful here to distinguish between two bodies in the laws of war. The first body, which is called use ad bellum, is about the is and sometimes referred to as just war theory or is adjacent to just war theory is about the conditions under which it would be legal for states to go to war. But then the body of law that I'm really talking about that in this book is sometimes referred to as use in bellow, international humanitarian law or law of armed conflict, lots of different terms that people use, is about how do you conduct yourself once you're in a war? And that implies that there is a clear start and end to the war. There's a, a, a switch that flips, right? That turns the spot, that activates this body of law and that deactivates this body of law. And for a long time, that switch were, was declarations of war on one side, peace treaties on the other. Problem is that as this project of modern international law has expanded over time, states want to avoid a situation where they're clearly in that domain. Um, and so increasingly they've been sidestepping, trying to sidestep the laws of war, trying to argue that they could sidestep the laws of war, creating some ambiguity about what exactly their kind of conflict is. So that's what I mean when I say that we're both, we're never and we're always at war because it's, because we don't call it war. Um, and so Given that the nature, the way in which the war, the law has evolved, has created these incentives, I think that we have to rethink that. And at the same time, when we're talking about the context of civil wars, there is this tension between which is a lot of which really rests on the um, concern from states about extending any kind of legitimacy or recognition to rebel groups in civil wars. Uh, there's this tension where on the one hand, as we were talking about just now, secessionists are really seeking membership in, in the club of states, but it's but they're not getting that reward for good behavior. So they're going to figure it out and, and maybe not behave so well if it's not in their interest otherwise to do so. Um, and 
you know, the broader point here is that the law really has to respond to politics on the ground and recognize politics on the ground if it's going to be effective. But that's not really how the law is structured. Can you comment on the interconnection, if any, between this book and your previous scholarship on state death? Yeah, I think there um there are a few different uh connections between this book and my previous book. They're although they're also quite different books. So in state death, what I'm trying to figure out is why some states disappear from the map of the world. And one of the reasons there were, there were a few different inspirations for that book, but I think one one of the reasons that I wrote that book was that I was trying to figure out why states don't seem to die anymore, at least via the particular path of one state fully, you know, coming in and swallowing up another. That particular path of via what I call violent state death, where a state is is engaging in territorial conquest wholesale of another state. And so in that sense, in that book, I'm trying I'm trying to explain a change. Um, and in wars of law, I'm trying to figure out why states have stopped issuing formal declarations of war and concluding peace treaties in their wars with each other. So in this respect, they're similar because they're both motivated by this desire to understand macro historical change. There's also a focus on norms and norm change in both books. So in State Death, part of my answer to the question of why states don't die anymore, at least they don't die in this particular way um, of violent territorial conquest, is that a norm against violent territorial conquest, uh, especially when it comes to the conquest of entire states, arises over the course of the 20th century and really solidifies after 1945. Uh, in Wars of Law, I'm looking at the, sort of the, the almost the back end, um, the decline of the norms of declaring war and concluding peace treaties, at least in interstate wars. Uh, and and third, I would say that in both books, I examine the relationship uh, in different ways between recognition and state sovereignty. So in state death, this happens from the get go, just in dis- defining what what polities count in scare quotes as states. Um, which is itself, you know, pretty a pretty fraught set of questions. But you know, also in identifying mechanisms of state death, what I find is that states that have less international recognition are more vulnerable to being taken over. Uh, and in wars of law, I spend a lot of time thinking about how secessionist groups behave differently from other kinds of rebel groups in civil war, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and it turns out. Uh, that a lot of their behavior, including their relationship to international humanitarian law, is conditioned by the desire to gain international recognition. Uh, So I think that that's another thread connecting those two books. How did you go about conducting this research? What obstacles did you encounter? Well, we talked a little bit about the data sets uh, underlying the book, and that was um, a pretty big investment for the book. There's a lot of data collection. There was also um, you know, also did archival research for this book as well as interviews. But I think that the, in some ways, the uh, one of the hardest things or fun but uh, challenging was um, really having to learn international law. Uh, and so to do this, I sat in on classes at the at Columbia Law School um, when I was on the faculty there. And so I'm very grateful to. Um, Anthea Roberts, who let me sit on her class, and Sam Moyne and John Witt, who also let me sit in on their class. I think it was kind of annoying 
especially for in Sam Moyne and John Witt's class. Um, wow. But <laughs> but they were because uh, I kept I, I remember Sam Moyne uh, at one point, you know, I raised my hand. He's like, go ahead, question the premise of the question, because um, there was apparently a pattern <laughs> that mm. I had developed over time. Uh, and so it was really nice of them to to let me sit down in the class. But just being a student again um, was was really important to to actually writing, being able to write this book. But you know, there were obstacles, right? It this book took a long time to write, um, and I think that in some ways, one thing that I don't know how successful I am in the book, but it's um, something I was definitely trying to do is to figure out how to bridge the gap between international law and international relations because these are the, the people in these two academic circles are engaged in really different projects um, international lawyers often assume or appear to assume um, the power of law while I think international relations scholars are much more likely to question the power of law and puzzling out why that was so uh, was part of the project of this book this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. There's another quote I'd be interested to ask you to uh, interpret for us, which is on page 67. You, you write the following. Like states, rebel groups often, though not always, invest in training their forces as to proper behavior with respect to those domains covered by international humanitarian law, such as treatment of civilians, protection of cultural property, and, and treatment of medical personnel. Unlike states, however, rebel group militaries tend to be relatively short-lived. Even the longest civil wars tend not to last longer than the shortest-lived states. The shorter time horizon for rebel groups means that they are unlikely to need to revise their training standards in light of changes in international humanitarian law, which tend to occur slowly, insofar as rebel groups intend to comply with international humanitarian law from the outset, those standards can be incorporated into their military training at the beginning of a conflict and will likely carry them throughout the duration of a war. The bureaucratic adjustment costs to proliferation of codified international humanitarian law are therefore much lower for secessionists in civil wars than they are for states engaged in interstate war simply because the time periods are shorter. Can you expand upon this observation for us? Yes. So one of the points I make in the book is that it's costly to comply with international humanitarian law. And one of those costs has to, is associated with the constant training in international humanitarian law that militaries receive. But there's a really important difference between state militaries and militaries of armed non-state actors. So, you know, we can think about the militaries of countries that are at war, that are often at war. So countries like the United States, Israel, India, Pakistan, these are countries that go to war a lot. Uh, and they have to respond to each 
new version or each each new law or each revision of international humanitarian law uh, that comes out. But rebel groups, they don't have the same resources as state militaries, but they just tend not to last as long. I think oftentimes when we think about civil wars, we think about civil wars that did last a long time, like the Colombian civil war, the Syrian civil war. But the reality is that most, uh, most civil wars are much shorter. Um, and because rebel groups at the end of a war, either they're usually defeated or maybe they're incorporated into the state. So they don't need to plan to in invest in that updating of international humanitarian law and updated training of their troops in the same way as state militaries do because they have a limited incarnation. So their time horizon is effectively flatter than for states. So they don't have to set have the same kind of bureaucratic infrastructure to update um, international humanitarian law training for their forces as states do. There's another passage I'd be curious to draw your attention to from page 58, where you write the following. Compliance with use in bello generates benefits as well as costs. A lawless battlefield does not serve belligerents well. Those fighting on both sides would prefer to have rules govern the treatment of prisoners of war, treatment of civilians, and conduct on the high seas. Moreover, a military that did not adhere to law could quickly become a domestic liability, even a domestic threat. It is perhaps for these reasons that, even prior to today's plethora of codified laws of war, use in bello existed as part of customary international law and was frequently agreed on an ad hoc basis through bilateral arrangements. One efficiency of today's body of codified international humanitarian law is that it does not require renegotiation prior to or during each war, although laws have often been revised post-war, and it is meant to allow belligerents to coordinate on acceptable comportment during war. Can you explain further what you mean here? Um, so we, we have the laws of war for a reason, right? They serve a need. Uh, and some of these laws are relatively straightforward, like, you know, laws regarding protecting medical personnel, treating the wounded. And this is some of these laws like that one benefit each side, right? The wounded are effectively out of the fight. Um, and each side would like to be able to treat and remove their wounded from the battlefield. And so it, it's, it's sort of a, a, a win-win, if you will, to have this law. And in fact, this was the first codified law of war on law, law on, on land warfare. Um, but it used to be for a very long time before the mid 19th century or so um, that you had agreements at the start of a war, even during a war. These are the rules that we're going to observe during this particular conflict. And so each time you did have to kind of reinvent the wheel. And because the both sides would like to have some laws in place, it's much more efficient not to have to reinvent the wheel each time. So that's one of the benefits of having um, a codified body of international humanitarian law that's kind of always out there in the background that states have signed on to. Uh, with that said, I think one really interesting uh, trend that we see uh, kind of pattern in uh, international humanitarian lawmaking is that after each 
this isn't always true, but after a lot of major wars, you see the development of new laws of war that are kind of, in a way, meant to address the previous war, but then don't necessarily um, address issues that really come up in the next war. You published this book in 2018. What was it like for you observing global news taking place concurrently as you conducted the research preparation and writing for this book? What insights came into your mind regarding contemporary international affairs and current events as you were thinking about this very topic? What insights does your book contribute regarding contemporary foreign policy issues? Um, so I would say that as I was writing the book, I was paying a lot of attention to civil wars, partly for the book, but also partly because that's these are the major wars that are happening at the same at, at you know as I was writing the book. Um, and I was very frustrated by the fact that international humanitarian law is so focused on interstate war. Uh, and but on, you know, on some level, that's not surprising, right? Because international law is made by states for states. Uh, and as I've mentioned a few times, states who don't want to afford legitimacy to the rebels that are challenging their sovereignty. I think the the Syrian civil war uh, is a good example. And so, you know, having those kinds of conflict uh, on the front page of the newspaper, but also always in the back of my mind, really informed how I thought about the um the book, especially the part on civil wars, because again, really highlighted for me the state-based nature of international humanitarian law, but also really highlighted for me because you know the the Syrian civil war starts in 2011, so that's a pretty big chunk of when I was the time I was writing the book, um, which as you mentioned came comes out in 2018. It, but it also highlighted to me the variety of rebel groups that are out there, right? So, for example, if we go back to Syria, we've got groups from Kurds to the Islamic State to the the Free Syrian Army, which is there at least at the very beginning. And this this array of different kinds of rebel groups with very different political aims really helped me think through um, how the implications of international humanitarian law and the proliferation of international humanitarian law for how these groups were going to engage with that body of law, but also really highlighted how important this set of questions is because you just you saw if you were paying attention at all, you really saw the um, these issues in, right in front of you, uh, and you really saw the impact on individual people. You say something very interesting on page 248. You write as follows. Even if state military personnel are in the room when major international humanitarian law provisions are being discussed and negotiated, non-state military personnel are typically not. For recent efforts, such as those on lethal autonomous weapon systems and cluster munitions, one reason for the absence of rebel groups from these discussions is that they do not have the resources to acquire or use such weapons. Cyber weapons, on the other hand, have been used in civil wars from Georgia to Syria and are accessible to rebel groups such as the Islamic State. But the more important reason for the exclusion of rebel groups from these discussions 
has to do with their status. International law is founded on a system of state-to-state -state interaction. Rebel groups challenge this system by challenging the sovereignty of states. International law is therefore unlikely to be receptive to the inclusion of actors that chip away at its foundation. By recognizing rebel groups, the makers of international law would be undermining their own enterprise, according to its director, the Tallinn Project's decision to focus on interstate war was a deliberate one, driven by the fact that there is more analysis treaty law and jurisprudence on interstate than civil war. While the Tallinn Manual does discuss non-international non-conflicts, the discussion of international armed conflicts is much more developed. Can you elaborate upon this passage? What is the Tallinn project? What is the Tallinn manual? Can you explain its significance? And can you interpret for us what is being suggested here in this passage? So the Tallinn process and the Tallinn manual is really interesting. It's not a treaty. Um, when you when you read textbooks on um, on international law, there's always a section on the sources of international law. And one of the sources of international law is legal writing. And so Talon, the Talon Manual is sort of closer to that. Um, it is basically a, a group of um, legal experts that were convened to try and figure out how we should interpret international humanitarian law in the event of cyber conflicts or cyber attacks. How So how do you combine international humanitarian law and cyber attacks? What counts as a violation? What kind of account, for example, would, would count as a violation um, of international humanitarian law? Uh, and it was very long and very detailed, but it's not a treaty, again. But it's on everybody's bookshelf because it is produced by this um, very distinguished group of legal experts. So I remember a few years ago um, having someone from the State Department zoom into one of my classes to talk about cyber and international humanitarian law. And he had, he pulled off his shelf. We all saw it, the Talon Manual right there. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's the reference book for cyber and international humanitarian law. And they were kind of the first movers on this. Um, but again, uh, it avoids talking too much about civil war, um, because even though that's the most frequent type of war, because that is, it, it's just a fundamental challenge to international law. And I don't think that international lawyers, like they, they recognize that if they are going to have something like a treaty or an agreement, then they need states to sign on to it. And um, states are going to be reluctant to do that because it will afford legitimacy and recognition, at least by implication, to the groups that are challenging their sovereignty. And so this is a, you know, this is what I'm trying to do here is show that the gap um, in the way that international humanitarian law has treated or not treated civil war, not just in not having non-state actors like armed groups. Um, being party to international humanitarian law, although there is some research that suggests that you know the, this that part of the gap is actually a little bit narrower than we thought. There's a new book by uh, Giovanni Mantia, Mantia on that, but nonetheless, it is a gap because states 
don't want to afford that kind of legitimacy and recognition to rebel groups, that that is not just something that's in the past, it's something that's going forward as well. This is a trend that is continuing over over time. But I will say, just uh, I just wanted to mention going back to um, part, an earlier part of our conversation, I think it's really sure. interesting to think about the Tallinn Manual and the set of questions that the manual addresses in the context of Russia's war, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, because these are two countries that are actually known for their cyber capabilities. Uh, certainly mm-hmm. Russia is, uh, and you know, Ukraine is a pretty tacked up country. There are a lot of app developers in Ukraine, for example. So they have a lot of capability there. But we haven't heard much, at least I haven't heard much, and I've been trying to pay attention to this. Um, although Twitter's demise makes it a little bit harder uh, to do all this. We haven't heard much about cyber attacks in this war. Um, it's probably, but and so it's not clear kind of what's going on. I just, I just want to raise that as something interesting. Is it because the two sides ha- are really good at, at cyber defense? Or, um, I mean, I think my, my guess is that probably there are cyber attacks that are happening and we're just not hearing about them. You say something quite intriguing when you allude to Russia's annexation of Crimea. You write the following, states no longer refer to their interstate wars as wars. Perhaps the clearest recent example of this type of pretense is Russia's role in the invasion of Crimea. On February 28th, 2014, hundreds of Russian soldiers took over airports and military bases in Ukraine's autonomous Republic of Crimea. Russia had taken pains to create deniability by stripping the insignia off its troops, while arguing that any intervention was meant to prevent spillover of radicalism and civil conflict. By investing in an international legal fiction, Russia gained at least a fig leaf to cover over its lack of compliance with the laws of war regarding the resort to force, use ad bellum, as well as with those governing belligerent conduct in time of war or use in bellow. The United States likewise refers to its conflicts as police actions, counterinsurgencies, or counterterrorism, each of these in quotation marks, but not war. Interstate war increasingly is conducted under the legal radar. This is from page three. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate upon this? Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing a a version of this today, actually, in 2022, right? Where, as I mentioned earlier, this is clearly a war, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, but Russia's not calling it a war. They're calling it a quote-unquote special military operation. There are lots of scare quotes around these alternative terms for war, and you have to ask why it's clearly a war. It's obviously a war. Why aren't we calling it a war? Um, And I think that part of the answer to this, or part of the answer to this, is because states are trying to avoid the international legal architecture around war including international humanitarian law, because there's really no benefit to them of calling it a war. Um, At least when it comes to international law, they would much rather be able to create what I call in this passage a fig leaf or to generate something like that, even if everybody knows it's a fig leaf, right? There's just, there's very little cost to saying it's not a war. Um, And there are actually 
real cost to acknowledging that it is a war because then you're very clearly within the domain of international humanitarian law and accountable for any and all violations. You have some thought-provoking remarks in the book regarding President Barack Obama's February 2015 request for a congressional authorization for the use of military force against the Islamic states. You point out that one of the issues at stake was whether Obama required a new authorization to engage in military action against ISIS, and that another issue was whether a declaration of war was possible against a non-state actor. You point out that although Congress is constitutionally empowered to declare war, it no longer tries to do so. You point out that the authorization is the new default, but it is significantly weaker than a declaration of war. What is more, Congress ultimately failed, as you write, to vote on, let alone pass, a new authorization. You point out that the shift away from the use of declarations of war to begin wars is a dramatic one in international history. Can you expand upon this? And what are its possible ramifications and consequences for the future? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so this passage speaks to the, a general trend in the use of or not decreasing use of declarations of war in interstate war, but also specifically to U.S. politics. And the broader global trend, you know, is when we can summarize just with numbers. So from from 1815 to 1948, about half of all wars, 50% between states. So again, we're in the domain of interstate wars here were accompanied by a formal declaration of war. But there are only two cases since then that I could find of interstate wars that were accompanied by a formal declaration of war. And I think that, you know, we often think about declarations of war as automatically accompanying wars. So you'll see news headlines saying X declares war on Y, um, but that's actually not the case anymore. And so that's, that's one point I'm trying to make there. Another point I'm trying to make in that passage is what do you do when um, you're a state and you're fighting, and it's not even a civil war in this case, um, like the US is not fighting a civil war within its own territory in this particular case, um, and you're, but you're fighting an actor that's not another state. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we don't really have much in the way of mechanisms for that. There was, there's a little bit in the early um, 19th century in terms of, uh, the how the U.S. is dealing with the Barbary pirates, but there is just isn't a lot of legal precedent for that. And it's a really challenging issue. But I think that, um, you know, when it comes to the U.S. specifically, there is an important debate about whether Congress has effectively ab abdicated one of its key responsibilities, because Congress hasn't issued a formal declaration of war since World War II, but the U.S. has been at war a lot since World War II. I recently saw I was recently reading, recently reading something that said that, um, and it was written a couple of years ago before the U.S. left Afghanistan, um, and, it, and the the author had found that the U.S. had been at war for the majority of the lifetimes of most living Americans, right? Yeah. So the U.S. has been at war a lot, but we don't declare war anymore. The authorizations of military force that were passed after 9-11 allowed two decades of war, right? Um, so that is, again, really raises questions, I think, about how much 
power that Congress has constitutionally is actually exerting in terms of um, constraining presidents who are engaged in war. Now, Congress still has the power of the purse, of course, but you have to wonder if the Afghanistan war, for example, would have lasted as long as it had, were it to have received more sustained attention from Congress and from the American public. Uh, Unfortunately, I think that for most people in the US, this war was really in the background um, and it being in the background and sort of just kind of letting these authorizations drift on and on is one of the reasons that it lasted as long as it did. Where do you situate this book among current scholarship on norms in IR? Where does this particular book say something unique and distinct that other scholars in IR have not necessarily noticed? I think it Probably the most distinctive um, part of the book when it comes to norms is the focus on norm decline, um, especially when it comes to declarations of war and peace treaties and interstate wars, but also the appropriation of certain international norms by actors in civil wars, as well as the challenges of applying international humanitarian law and associated norms in civil wars. Um, I, I mean, I do think... The book also speaks to the relationship between norms and law, but that's kind of a perennial chicken and egg problem and one that's not necessarily unique to this book. What are some ideas for future research projects, maybe papers or essays or articles or even books that students and future readers of your book might consider engaging in based on your work and its findings? What would you like to see as a new research agenda among international relations scholars regarding the themes you present in your book? I think there's still a lot to be done um, in terms of bridging the gap between international relations and international law. And I would really love to see some frank conversations about these gaps, because I think we need to better figure out their contours, not just intellectually, um, but also because I think that a lot of international relations scholars, especially people who study international security like me, and a lot of scholars of international law, especially those who focus on the, the laws of war in one way or another, are, you know, we have the same normative commitment, which is that we would all like to see less war. And um, for those of us who've done work on international humanitarian law, we would like to see the efficacy of international humanitarian law improve. And both these areas of scholarship spill a lot of ink. Scholars you know, in, this, in these areas spill a lot of ink on this topic, and this book is an example of that. Um, but I don't think we do a very good job of talking to each other. So I'd love to see more on that. Um, I also think that I, I would love to see more work on norm decline. I think this is a really interesting topic that we haven't really fully address. People are maybe starting to look at it now. And more generally, kind of stepping back, I think that we do a very poor job in international relations of explaining change over time, major global shifts. And so I think that there there are a lot of opportunities to look at um, change in international relations, in global politics, not in the field of international relations. Um, like In other words, not the sociology of international relations, but actual change in the way that global politics is conducted over time. I agree. Uh, These would be terrific 
and tremendous new directions for scholarship. You say, you say something that caught my attention on page 252. You write the following. Today, when the international community says jump, the secessionist response is often how high, but as the international community is not there to cushion their fall, secessionists will soon realize that the link between good behavior and rewards is mostly false. Given the twin forces of increasing civil war and increasing secessionism, the viability of this fiction may be eroding. Why is this so? Um, what do you mean? So uh, this is what I was referring to earlier as the secessionist dilemma, which is I think it's a dilemma for secessionists because they have to decide how they want to behave vis-a-vis international humanitarian law, as well as other decisions that they have to make. And they've been making decisions based on a set of assumptions about the responses that they will receive if they behave well. Um, but those decisions, you know, have not been validated by the responses that they have actually received. So in other words, the the reality has not lived up into the the expectation, um, but you know I think secessionists are are starting to figure it out because there are more of them, and as I mentioned earlier, they're networking with each other, and so that's what I mean when I say that the viability of this fiction um, may be eroding, and I think it's a it's it's kind of a set of assumptions that a lot of secessionist group strung together, um, and they're just realizing that those assumptions don't hold. Uh, and that can be is potentially going to be very problematic because, as I mentioned uh, in this passage and earlier in our conversation, there are there, there secessionism is on the rise. Um, and so, if this group of armed non-state actors has been one of the most compliant with international humanitarian law because they believe that it would evoke a positive response from the international community, but they're figuring out that that's not actually how it works, then that does not bode well um, for compliance with international humanitarian law going forward. You state on the next page, 253, uh, the following, intervention should only occur when the international community has solved its own commitment problem in terms of the deployment of appropriate resources. Half measures may do more long-term harm than good if they enable or exacerbate the commitment problem inherent in civil war and thus compound the human costs of war. However appealing they may might seem, peace treaties may not always be the answer. Why do you feel this way? So um this is more a conclusion than a feeling. <laughs> um and but you know to give some context, you know, as I mentioned, most wars are civil wars today, uh, and the data, you know, analyses by others suggest that civil wars tend to take place in relatively poor countries, oftentimes countries where there's great in, in economic inequality as well. And there is this inherent commitment problem in civil wars. When I when I teach civil wars to um, my undergraduates, uh, I put up this slide that has um, kind of two squares, each representing uh, different parties to a war. In an interstate war, when the war ends, each side, each square, they can each retreat to either side of an international border. 
But in a civil war, you have to live with each other one way or the other, unless there's a successful secessionism, which is pretty rare, as we were talking about earlier. So in a, the commitment problem in a civil war is that one side has to give up their weapons. Um, and again, this is different from a war between states where you can retreat behind a border and you don't have to disarm in that context. And you need a lot of resources to keep the peace when one side is being asked to disarm. You can't just negotiate a peace treaty, have the party sign and be done with it. The international community has developed a taste for peace treaties, um, but uh, and so we see this rise in the incidents in the use of peace treaties and civil wars, which is the opposite of what we see in interstate wars. Um, but you know, having a peace treaty can raise expectations, but you have to you have to follow through. Uh, and so I don't necessarily have the solution. I don't necessarily know what the solution is, but I think that we have to acknowledge that um, a peace treaty is not enough and a peace treaty without the follow through could be worse than not having a peace treaty at all. Can you describe the Spanish-American Wars course of events? How does it contribute to your argument? It's a very interesting episode of history. Where does it fit into your book's perspective? Um, yeah, I, I love this case. Um, in, the, in this book, uh, the Spanish-American War kind of exemplifies the early era of the laws of war. Um, so at that time, there weren't that many codified laws of war on the books. The laws that were there were written in ways that um, that favored belligerents, that made it easier for them to prosecute their wars. Um, so as I mentioned, there weren't that many laws of war on the books, but one of them, the 1856 Declaration Respecting Maritime Law, stated that for naval blockades to be legal, they had to be a effective, which is a little bit of an a little bit circular, um, and B accompanied by a formal declaration of war. And so early on in the Spanish-American War, the US blockades Havana Harbor in Cuba. Um, but they instituted the blockade be before having declared war. So that means technically that the blockade is not legal. So what did con Congress do? The US Congress, they issued a declaration of war, but they backdated it, right, to to the either the day of or the day before the blockade was instituted. Um, so, so this is a case where the laws of war really benefited belligerents, and so the belligerents took advantage of them. This is also an interesting war because um, it's a war that's accompanied by a formal peace treaty, again, unlike most interstate wars today. There was very little in the violation of international humanitarian law between the U.S. and Spain. But as, again, there were not that many laws on the books. But crucially, um, and I think this speaks to some of the inequities that I haven't really talked about that are baked into international humanitarian law, we can't say the same with respect to high levels of compliance for how the U.S. and especially the Spanish treated insurgents in Cuba and the Philippines. Now, um, these groups were actually allies of the US, including in Puerto Rico, but there were some pretty racist assumptions that were made about the ability of um, the Filipinos and the Cubans to conduct, quote unquote, civilized warfare. How does your book advance our understanding of recognition in international law and international relations? Um. 
I think that it does that in, okay, so hold on a second, hold on a second, all right, I'm just trying to sure. find my notes on this, this one. Okay. I think that the book treats uh, recognition and it, uh, hopefully advances our understanding uh, in a couple of ways. Um, one is that it really underlines the importance that secessionists attach to recognition. And again, it underlines that how much the structure of international law and certainly international humanitarian law is state-based, that it is written by states, for states, and also shows that they just don't want to extend it to rebels that are challenging state sovereignty. And that really potentially limits its uses in what is the most common form of war today, civil war. On page 219, you say something that that caught my attention. Instead, I argue, you write, peace treaties and civil wars are on the rise because of the expressed preferences of the international community for such agreements. This expression is visible via public statements made by representatives of organizations such as the United Nations, and also via the training and deployment of cores of international mediators in the UN era. Even if belligerents in civil war are not as explicitly focused on the laws of war as our belligerents in interstate war, the governments and rebels fighting civil wars certainly pay attention to the preferences of the same international community that designed international humanitarian law. While the increased use of peace treaties in civil wars may appear to be a positive development and unintended consequence of the international community's taste for peace treaters may be that too much focus has been trained on these agreements at the expense of the peace that follows. Can you say more about the uh, about this about this passage? In particular, how does the illusion that you, the reference that you make to the United Nations teach us something in regard to the argument of your book and how does your book enable us to understand the United Nations in, in new ways? Can you share some thoughts on this passage with us? And in light of the contribution of your book to thinking in new ways about the UN and how the case of the UN helps you develop the argument in this book? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think in a lot of ways, I use the United Nations as kind of a stand-in for the international community, which is as I mentioned earlier, this term that I have a little bit of a fraught relationship with, because I feel like it's a term that we gets thrown a lot around a lot, and I'm as guilty of that as anybody. Um, so I'm trying to pin it down a little bit, and so that's 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 part of how I'm I'm treating the UN um, in the book in general, and also in this specific passage. And and part of what I'm trying to acknowledge here is that rebel groups. Um, they're not necessarily going to the ICRC website, reading through all the laws of war that are out there, and then reading through the, the you know the very long um, documents on customary international humanitarian law, etc. So they're not necessarily as well trained um, as state militaries, but um, they do pay attention to sort of more short-term signals that are often sent by groups like the UN. And again, I'm using the UN as kind of a stand-in for 
for the international community. Um, and one of those signals is that the UN likes peace treaties. And so they have, they have this sort of trained cadre of mediators. Um, and and it, it, this is going to sound, I feel like, you know, it, it would be easy to interpret or one interpretation of what I'm saying is that I'm opposed to what the UN is doing, or I'm opposed to the work of these mediators, and I'm not, or that I'm opposed to peace treaties on principle, and I'm not. That's not what I'm trying to say. Um, what, what I am trying to say is that we shouldn't have peace treaties just for the sake of having peace treaties. And I do think that there is a system that's set up that kind of pushes us in that direction because there is this trained cadre of mediators, because the UN has expressed a preference for wars ending by peace treaty because we all we do what we're trained to do. So if you're a professionally if you're a professional mediator working for the UN, then that's what you want to do. You want to mediate. Right. That's that's it, it makes complete sense. But again, we don't want to have peace treaties just for the sake of having peace treaties, because just because you have a peace treaty doesn't mean that the war is not going to recur. Plenty of wars recur after peace treaties have been created. And there is, you know, there are a lot of people who spend a lot of time rightly focused on how do we make better peace treaties and, you know, what is the right timing for peace treaties um, and, you know, related questions. Uh, but we haven't quite figured that out yet. And sometimes it seems like there's a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction that we should have a peace treaty. Um, but again, you have to, you can't just can't just have a peace treaty. You have to, there's much more investment that has to be made, especially in the context of a civil war. In your preface, in the pages of the book that have Roman numerals as page numbers, uh, you write the following. The hardest part about writing acknowledgements is knowing how many people one will forget to thank. I often, I, I therefore begin with an apology and my gratitude to those who lent a hand to this project but whose names I neglect to mention. You point out that your book was a long time coming, and you point out that since beginning to work on this book, you got married, had two children, were denied tenure, received tenure, moved twice, and lost your father. You state, I would not have been able to manage all these life-changing events, and certainly this book would not have been completed without the support of family, friends, and colleagues who have made critical contributions along the way. Can you comment on the support you receive from any people that you could not name in writing? And in particular, to the extent that you feel comfortable, can you share something about your father who passed away? In what ways did he support you? What kind of moral and material support did he provide you? Would you like to comment on his perspective on your academic work and on this research process? Yeah, um, I'll try and kind of keep the emotions uh, in check or at least out of my voice. Um, so for the first part, the people I couldn't name in writing, I mean, there were just dozens of seminar participants um, who heard different parts of this work. Lots of people in the NGO international legal community I spoke with, some of whom I think might not want to be name checked. Um, and I just think they, you know, 
the book, uh, you know, as you quoted, it was a long time coming. My first book was published in 2007. This book was published in 2018. That's 11 years. It's a long gap. A lot happens in between. And, you know, I worry, I'm certain that I have just forgotten conversations where a light bulb went off and I just, I don't remember who it was I was talking to who made that light bulb go off for me or those light bulbs. So I just, you know, if any of those people are listening and and feel um, hurt or neglected that they weren't mentioned in the book, I just apologize for that because it just, the, you know, books are, it takes a long time to write a book and inevitably you're just going to, you're not going to remember every step along the way. Um, but as to my dad, um, you know, he was really, I think the person who's probably most responsible for my intellectual trajectory. He, um, he was an immigrant to the United States. He loved talking about politics. He was a medical doctor, not um, not a political scientist or an academic in any way. Um, but he loved talking about politics. He loved history. And um, my mother will tell stories of how he would keep me up, you know, until all hours of the night. And we would debate all, you know, the international relations of the day, basically. And I was you know, pretty young, probably an adolescent uh, when we started doing that, maybe even a, a maybe even a tween, um, like, you know, nine or 10 when we started having those kinds of conversations. Uh, and I, he just really uh, encouraged me to argue um, with him and to think about uh, a lot of issues in the world, especially I think issues around inequality. Uh, and so, and he, didn't necessarily he bought my first book um, and wow. tried to read it but um but didn't you know there's a lot of statistical analysis in the first book and you know it wasn't necessarily his cup of tea but he was enormously proud that I'd written a book um uh, and but this but this book my second book is is dedicated to both my mother and my father who've just been incredibly supportive of me and you know really believed uh, in my ability to to do whatever I could set my mind to, even when I didn't. You also make reference to your your mother, Maydeen, your sister, Shayna, your husband, Lou, and your children, Tag and V. Do you feel comfortable commenting on the ways they inspired you in the course of this book's preparation and the journey surrounding it? Yeah, I mean, so again, you know, my mom and dad have just always, they always believed in me. Um, you know, even when when I didn't, my sister is just she's a very straightforward and um uh kind of upbeat, but at the same time serious and thoughtful person, and is just always someone I can turn to. Um, you know, my husband has just been amazing uh, since before we were married, and of course since we've been married as well. And I just remember, um, you know, you you quoted uh, one of the other passages from my prophets preface where I talk about, um, you know, I got married since this book started, since I started writing the book, I had kids, I was denied tenure, I received tenure, and I, you know, it's a real being denied tenure um, was caused a real crisis of confidence, not surprisingly. And I just remember my husband saying, like, just taking me by the shoulders and saying, "You are excellent," and there was just so much sincerity in the, in that, and it made. He's, he's such a smart person also that it just made a, a big difference. And, you know, and your kids, kids just ground you, right? Um, when you, and, and they give you a lot of joy. Um, when you study war uh, at all, uh, and certainly historically, 
from the perch of a 21st century academic in the US. I mean, that's a pretty good way of reminding you how lucky you are, but also how much better the world can be for so many people. And I think having kids really underlines that. Thank you for sharing that. As we bring our dialogue to a close, what are you working on next as a current project? Can you tell us about what you've been developing intellectually after the completion of this book? Yes, so I'm actually, I hope, close to the end of another book um, called Military Medicine and the Hidden Costs of War. And that book, unlike my previous two books, is um, it's not based, there's no data set underneath it. Um, it's basically, the argument of the book is basically that dramatic improvements in military medicine in the U.S., and the book is just focused on the U.S., alongside historically the expansion of the veterans benefit system, have made war more costly in the long term than we tend to appreciate. Um, so uh, I will say that that book is, it's not something you should read while you're eating, um, mm. because military medicine is is quite disgusting. I mean, I really like it, but you know, <laughs> mm. I, I've been told it has ruined a few people's appetites um, or different, as they've read different parts of the book. Um, but, you know, it's it's kind of a, in some ways, it's a, a one volume military medical history of the U.S., but starting with the Civil War and going through the more recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and it's just remarkable how the, the story of military medicine, how it's changed. Um, and, you know, I won't go too far. I won't drag you too far down this rabbit hole with me. Maybe you'll have me on when, when this next book comes out. But uh, it's, you know, at the same time, it's not just history for, um, it's not just a description of what has happened, but it's, it's really in the service of an argument that, you know, the, the medicine has gotten so good that as a percentage of those deployed, many more people are coming home having survived injuries that they just simply would not have survived in the past. And so when we think about the costs of war ahead of time, we often think about the human costs almost exclusively in terms of fatalities. But in fact, the nature of casualties has changed, again, especially for the US, um, so that most casualties many, many more casualties are in the non-fatal than the fatal column. And so uh, what I'm arguing is that if we think about the decision to go to war as a cost-benefit calculation, I think we've been getting the cost wrong because we haven't been paying attention to these non-fatal casualties and the costs, both human and financial, associated with them in the very long term. Thank you for sharing that. That project sounds amazing. Oh, thank you. I hope so. <laughs> to our listeners, I am your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today, it's been my blessing and my privilege to be in dialogue with Dr. Tanisha Fazal. She is a professor of political science at the University of Minnesota and an Andrew Carnegie Fellow during the years 2021 to 2023. We have been discussing her book, Wars of Law, Unintended Consequences in the Regulation of Armed Conflict, published by Cornell University Press, 2018. Thank you.